you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We want to return uh, to our studies there. We paused a few weeks before Christmas, and now we are prepared uh, to go back uh, to our sermon series in the book of Acts. So Acts, chapter uh, 13, we'll begin uh, in verse 1 in just a moment, reading uh, through verse 12. It is uh, good uh, to be back with you. I was only out for a Sunday. I do appreciate the opportunity uh, to take some time off. It was very uh, enjoyable, except for a few bumps and bruises along the way. Uh, but uh, uh, at any rate, uh, as I describe skiing, uh, they're much like sermons. Uh, any one of them that you can walk away from, it was a good sermon, it was a good ski trip. And so I'm still walking, so it's all good. One morning this week, I turned on the television, uh, something I rarely do on any morning. I, I try to postpone discouragement till later in the day, and so I leave the television off for most of the time. But when it came on, the, what was playing was the very final minutes of one of my favorite movies, Apollo 13. And as I watched Tom Hanks playing Jim Lovell tumble out of that capsule, at the end of that mission, I found a lump forming in my throat. I found tears coming to my eyes, and that is not normally the way I respond to movies, I assure you, and something that kind of caught me off guard. And I began to think about the greatness of those men and the country that they represented and what they accomplished, their, their courage to step into worlds unknown. Many of you that are baby boomers or maybe those that are older than us baby boomers, I remember. I remember Gus Grissom. And I remember Roger Chaffee. And I remember Ed White. And I remember hearing on the news that they had burned in the first Apollo mission. And as much as I was not a science fiction guy, I was not a techie guy, but I was a kid and I'm still a man that admires profound courage, that admires boldness, that, that I can't imagine, that I can't even approach. And if you'll remember, uh, basically the uh, Apollo mission series was put on hold. They kind of revisited, re-engineered, rebuilt everything because of that catastrophic fire. Eventually, after a series of missions, we remember uh, the landing of the Apollo astronauts on the moon. And so Apollo 13 was another mission to the moon, uh, led by the man I mentioned, Jim Lovell. And on the way, the words were heard over that scratchy radio transmission, Houston, we have a problem. And immediately, those engineers, those brilliant men, both on board Apollo 13 and those there in Houston and in Florida, begin to work the problem, begin to find a solution to bring those men safely back to Earth. And in the movie and in real life, the mission director, Gene Krantz, made the statement, failure is not an option. 
And, you know, I, I, as I began to think and, and, and study th this week, and, and, and just as, as that crossed my mind, I'm thankful for those of us who know Christ. Failure is not an option. Christ has said what? I will build my church. And as I, I think about the current cultural moment, I think about our own moment here at North Clay going through a season of great adversity and great tragedy that has deeply impacted all of us. And my prayer is, as Gene Krantz once said, they are saying that Apollo 13 is going to be NASA's most terrible, most awful, biggest disaster. And he responds, that, no, I say to you, it's going to be our greatest day as we bring these men back alive. And so as we go through this season of affliction, whether it's us here at North Clay, whether it's maybe your personal particular season of adversity, or whether we think of it in the broader culture of the adversities, the afflictions, possibly even the persecution that is sure to come, I will assure you of this. Failure is not an option. That no matter the tragedy, and they will indeed come, because our God is glorified in His people triumphing over the world, the flesh, the devil. Because He will see us to the end. Because He will build His church. He will be glorified. It will be His greatest day. And He has been so gracious to share that with us. Again, as I thought about the, the courage of those men that essentially said, just go buy a tractor-trailer load of dynamite, and I will get an aluminum can on top of it, and you light the fuse, and we'll see what happens. Incredible. Just, just incredible. And I think about the men here in Acts chapter 13. We'll go to somewhere we're not familiar with. We're going to go to people that do not know us. We're going to proclaim a message that they have never heard. And we know that we're going to be abused. And we know that we're going to be persecuted. And we know that we're going to pray, face deprivation. And yet because our God is faithful. And because we know that failure is not an option. We will go. We will serve. We will not only survive, but because our God is faithful, we will thrive because He will be glorified in and through us. So let us read this morning. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, uh, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, uh, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what, he had, what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, once again we come to you. We thank you for your goodness, for your graciousness to us, for your faithfulness, for your testimony to us that you indeed are our good shepherd and that your rod and your staff, they do comfort us. So I thank you that you take us through this season and every season of affliction. God, you have never lost one of yours because no one can pluck any of us out of your hand, and for that we give thanks. I pray today that we would hear your truth, that I would speak with clarity, that it would be understood, and that your spirit would work in our lives, that we would have understanding, uh, that you would impress upon us uh, the applications uh, for our own lives. May we leave here never to be the same again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have made it to what is uh, one of the major junctions in the book of Acts, we transition from those opening 12 chapters, uh, uh, the first six deal with uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the uh, work of the church there within the city of, of Jerusalem, uh, then, then the persecution arising, even the martyrdom of that young man Stephen. And because of this persecution, uh, the church began to, to move out. As Jesus said they would, you're going to begin in Jerusalem, uh, then you're going to go into the other parts of Judea, then you're going to go into Samaria, and then into worlds unknown the uttermost parts of the world. In God's wise providence, it seems as though the difficulties that the early disciples faced there in Jerusalem was a part of the impetus for them moving into the world as well as simple obedience to Jesus' words as we find them both in Acts and in the Gospel of Matthew, that which we call the Great Commission. They knew that they were to go. And so as we come to Acts 13, that time has come. Yes, indeed, uh, they have uh, gone, they have uh, uh, preached the gospel to the 
hated and dreaded Samaritans and they have even seen the very Spirit of God, the Spirit that had indwelled them, the Spirit that equipped them, the Spirit that was empowering them to go, even indwell the Gentiles. And so they were growing and they were learning. And the center of the church seemingly was shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch, and I really think ultimately to points beyond even Antioch. But we find there a, one of uh, Luke's telltale things that he does. He occasionally steps back and gives us a bit of a snapshot of the church at this particular point in the church's history. And so we are told uh, after uh, Barnabas and Saul had completed some work and uh, they had uh, returned to Jerusalem. Uh, evidently, uh, commentators say that between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, about five years elapsed. You know, we sometimes lack patience. Uh, on a few occasions, people have said, I'm not particularly patient. Uh, I, I don't see that in myself, but uh, I've been told that. But yeah. Five years, they wait, and they prepare. Again, why? Because God is faithful. And God is with us in every moment, and no moment for God's people is ever wasted. No event, no circumstance, no trial, no tribulation is ever wasted upon God's people. He uses them all. And so we come to the church at Antioch, and, and we're told, first of all, that there were prophets and teachers, and then we see this list of names, uh, at least of some of those who were prophets and teachers. And we see uh, Barnabas, who we've been introduced to previously, seems to be maybe at this point a little bit of the more, more preeminent, uh, the more respected of uh, the men of the church at this juncture that's going to change but at this point seemingly Barnabas had a type of preeminence there in Antioch then we uh, see uh, Simeon and uh, we see that he was also called Niger Niger uh, means dark or black so it may be that he was an African and we don't know that for certain but, but uh, uh, many times the names are representative of certain characteristics so that's very very possible very very likely uh, we see uh, a man identified as Lucian, uh, who was uh, a Cyrene him, himself, uh, Manian, who was uh, associated uh, with Herod the, the Tetrarch. And in fact, some would say that uh, that, that phrase, lifelong friend, could be uh, translated uh, as something like he was a, a foster brother or stepbrother, that he was even raised uh, within the household of Herod. Not, not exactly sure about that, but it is possible that he was really closely associated and that he may have been the one that gave Luke a great deal of information about uh, the Herod uh, dynasty. And then last that is mentioned there is Saul. Notice he is still identified as Saul here uh, at this juncture. And so that made up, it may not be exhaustive, of those who were functioning in the church as prophets and teachers. Notice it, it doesn't mention elders 
or, or pastors. It doesn't mention deacons there. Uh, I, I would suspect it was so early in the history of the church that some of those things had not been uh, formally established. We've seen some mention of the elders. Uh, the concept of eldership would not have been foreign to the Jews. Uh, there were elders that functioned uh, within the synagogues, and that's how that kind of flowed into the, to the early church. But what Luke mentions here are these two groups, and even there's some debate, is, is it is prophet, teacher, one office, or is it two? If you'll remember from Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks of those that are pastor teachers, okay? And some say that, that that's two things, pastors and teachers. Some say it's one thing. I, I'm kind of on, in line. I think it's pastor, teacher. It's one thing. And, but here I think it's two. I think there were prophets and there were teachers. And probably the prophets were also often thought of as teachers, uh, but the teachers were not necessarily uh, prophets. And so what were these men doing there in the church at Antioch in that worshiping uh, community? Well, first and foremost, we can be absolutely certain, because this is always the function of a prophet, Old Testament, New Testament, Modern-day church is to call people to repentance and faith, to call them to be converted, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To, as, as I say over and over again, and we'll say again today, the call to examine yourself, to see if you're of the faith. Do that daily. Does my life line up with what I say I believe? And so prophets call to repentance. Yes, indeed, at this juncture in church history, and we've seen one already in the book of Acts. His name is Agabus. He will appear again in the book of Acts in chapter 21, who actually does some foretelling. Here's some things that are going to happen. There's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. Be prepared. Paul, you're going to suffer greatly. And so uh, there was uh, uh, something going on there in which these men were so gifted, uh, so uh, filled with, inspired by, if you will, the Holy Spirit, that they gave uh, revelatory uh, truth. Uh, and uh, certainly they were able, in view of what they had in terms of Scripture, which was the Old Testament, uh, they were able to see uh, the Old Testament. Every part, every part and portion of the Old Testament, they were able to see it through the lens of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and give it its fullest explanation and its fullest meaning. And so they were given to uh, doctrinal, uh, excuse me, to, to revelatory message, to interpreting the Old Covenant in terms of the New, and they were calling people to repentance and faith. And then the teachers came along beside them. Uh, presumably, uh, the teachers were not a part of those that were gifted to receive revelatory information, Okay. But they offered both doctrinal instruction and ethical instruction. I, and I, I kind of want to pause here and, and, and go down, I think, a very important side road. And so many of us here are, are rightly convicted of the truth of what might be loosely called uh, Reformation theology, the, the sovereignty of God, the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of these things that flow out of there that, that we preach, as I stated so long ago, 19-plus years ago, we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as Paul recalled as his time uh, in Corinth and wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And so rightly, we speak of the gospel. But I fear many times that as preachers and teachers, 
Yes, there's the objective truth of the gospel and the great reality of conversion and the necessity and the experience of the new birth. But there is a way that it essentially and intrinsically dovetails with the way in which we live. We, we cannot say, oh yes, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and live any way that we choose to live. It will not stand the test of biblical scrutiny. And I've told you the key, the genius to understanding this, this thing that's brought such great clarity to the Scriptures, is the genius of the reformer Martin Luther as he looked at the Word of God and said there is law and there is gospel and the law demands and the law condemns. And we need to understand that so we appreciate that the gospel gives. It gives life. It gives forgiveness. It gives righteousness. And that is the great promise that we cling to. But let me just kind of show you by way of illustration what was preached. Go to the book of Ephesians. Imagine me asking you to turn to the book of Ephesians. I think most of you can find it by now. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, I think we see a great example of how, and, and, and if you'll remember, many times when we speak of Ephesians, we say, first three chapters, great high theology, the sovereignty of God, the deadness of man, the, the working of regeneration, these great truths that we believe, we proclaim, that we cling to, first three chapters. Last three chapters, this is how it works out in your life. This is how it necessarily, essentially works out in your life. And just kind of just picking and choosing through this, these teachers teaching the Word of God, how it applies, what it means. Look at chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Verse 17, Paul simply says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, you must not. Take your cues regarding your lifestyle from the unbelieving world. That's very broad and very simple. Now, that is an admonition. So that falls in the category of which? Gospel or law? Law. Guess what we have done? Every one of us. Don't look at me. You look at your shoelaces. It'll be real comfortable for you. Every one of us have taken our cues from the pagans, haven't we? We've let them dictate what we think. Oh, you say, no, 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 I would never. Oh, yeah, you have. Oh, yeah, you have. The law, what? Condemns. It condemns us. I need a Savior because I have taken my cues for the way I live, for what I value from the world. Far too often. Y'all are sure looking spiritual. You must not be listening. And he goes on, and he begins to spell out specifically. Look down at verse 25. Don't lie to each other. No falsehood. Husbands, don't even shade the truth, okay? Wives, same thing. Be imitators of God. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who considered equality of God with God to not something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. What's that? It's an example that points us to the law. 
humble yourselves. How many of us have perfectly, perfectly humbled ourselves before Almighty God? And so, then he goes on, verse 3, speaking to the issue of immorality or foolish talk or crude joking, and on and on. And he says, listen, just in simple, the way we talk in Clay, Alabama, people whose lives are characterized by that are what? They're not believers. They're not believers. That's what he says. And again, we, we want to avoid the, the, the excesses that I am far too familiar with of fundamentalism and, and legalism of, you know, uh, don't, don't dance, smoke, or chew, or run around with women that do. You know, that's kind of the way I grew up. And if you, you know, if that was kind of your mantra, you were a godly person. It's legalism. And we want to avoid that. But we want to avoid the excesses of liberalism and license as well. And even in those who really talk the talk, oh, they're conservative in their you know, doctrinal convictions. But do we look at this? And do we understand this is our ethical instruction? This is how we live. This is the implication of the gospel. Do I see these things taking root in my life? Do I see these things being excised, removed? Do I confess them as I see them assault myself? And having seen them and confessed them, having realized, again, that I am too friendly with the world, I take too many of my cues from the world, and on and on the list we go, do I then flee to the cross of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and rejoice that I will stand faultless before His throne, not because of my righteousness, but because of His righteousness. You see, we, we must preach, as Paul will say he did in Ephesus, preach the whole counsel of God. You cannot preach the gospel without emphasizing the life-changing implications of the good news and the working of God in our lives. And so they were teaching these Prophets and teachers, calling people to repentance, teaching uh, these people uh, about this new uh, reality uh, of uh, the work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were a worshiping community. The, the word there in chapter 13, that in verse 2 there, translated as worshiping, uh, the Greek is uh, latireo, and it, it's a, kind of used in a number of ways in the ancient world. But it's used to describe the work of priests, of their rendering, their sacrifices, their service to God. In other words, it, the concept is they were God-oriented. And so when we worship, we are God-oriented. We, we, we are offering our service. We're giving that sacrifice of praise to God, which is, again, our duty our privilege, our obligation. And so they were worshiping together and they were discovering the concept that indeed there's a new priesthood. There's a royal priesthood. And it's the church of the living God. And we render our lives as service to Almighty God. And so what were they doing? And I've mentioned this. I, I remember, I guess, maybe a year ago, when we began the, the book of Acts, and I was going to be out for a Sunday, does everybody know what a Brad face is? If you don't, go to Brad Aldridge and just say, what's a Brad face? He'll show you. 
And uh, I was giving out text for the guys to preach while I was going to be gone. And I said, okay, you've got Acts, I think it was 242 through 44. I mean, you'd have just thought I'd told him, you know, I'm going to take away your candy or something. I mean, he was just pouting and, and moping and, you know, what? And I was like, it's one of the greatest passages in the book of Acts. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I don't know how many times I've preached it. I've preached it into four, five, six sermons. And so he kind of manned up after that. But what were they doing? They were worshiping. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, to fellowship, to prayer, the breaking of bread. They were doing these things. And so what were they doing here in Antioch? What should we be doing at North Clay Baptist Church? Oh, we need to have more lights, and we need to have more smoke, and more mirrors, and you know this and that. No, we need to be reading the Word of God. That's what they were doing. It shook the world 2,000 years ago, and it is the only thing and the only hope that we have for shaking this world now that needs to be shaken. In fact, God's Word promises this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, will be shaken, but there's a kingdom established on the Word of God and the person of work of Jesus Christ that will never be shaken. It will endure because what? Failure is not an option. And so they were reading the Scripture, and they were preaching the Scripture. They were preaching the Word of God. And, and uh, when we get further into chapter 13, we'll, we'll see an example of how uh, they were preaching uh, the Word of God. And they were taking this Word, and, and, and many times since they were doing it in the synagogues, they were saying that this is how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you as Jews were promised, were anticipating, under the Old Covenant. And, and I thought that was that type of preaching, and we see a number of examples that was fundamentally, you know, what was uh, uh, done for the, for the sake of the Jews. But, and I, I was listening to a, a lecture uh, by Dr. Robert Godfrey recently, a church historian, uh, associate with R.C. Sproul on church history. And he said, the Romans, you know, and they would kind of accumulate the gods of the people they conquered and, you know, multiple, multiple gods. But, but, you know, in our culture, if it's newer, it's got to be better, right? I mean, you've got an iPhone 17 and, 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 and you've got to go get an iPhone 17B squared or something, okay? Because it's newer. Okay? Got to be better. The Romans didn't think that, particularly in terms of religion. If it was older, it was better. And so this Jesus, this Son of God, this crucified promised Messiah is the Son of God who created everything that is. That's about as old as you can get. And that appealed to Roman sensibilities. I'd never thought about that. I thought that was awesome and just very insightful. So they're reading Scripture, preaching Scripture, the prophets were giving revelatory information. Uh, uh, tongues were going on, okay? There, there was the gift of tongues being practiced in the early church. They were baptizing people. They were observing the Lord's Supper, the ordinances that, that were commanded. Uh, we'll see it right here. I don't think it's an ordinance, but I think it should be a continuing practice. They were laying hands on those that were being set aside uh, for unique service. Uh, they were uh, uh, singing uh, the Psalms. Uh, they were making doctrinal uh, confessions. I, I alluded to a moment ago, uh, Philippians chapter 2, there's some uh, 
that think that beautiful statement of Christology, of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, found in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, some say it was an early creed. Some say it was probably even an early hymn, okay, which tells us something about what we ought to sing in the church. We ought to sing things that say about God that which God ought to hear from people that he saved, okay, that he is great. He is greater than all. He is above all. And so these things were going on uh, there in that church at Antioch. In essence, they were worshiping in spirit and in truth. And one of the criticisms that I often level is because I'm right. Right? Right. Right? Okay. Is modern worship has become incredibly sensate. It's, it's about the senses. It, it is about me being moved. And like I say, what is worship? First and foremost, it is that which we offer to God. Now, let me, let me say this, and I, I don't have time to do my Isaiah 6 business today. But let me tell you this. Don't ever say that you've been to worship if when you're leaving, your confession is not, here I am, send me. If your life is not transformed by what you say you've been doing, namely worship, you have not worshiped. It's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? All right, so upon the instructions of the Spirit, we see there that while they were worshiping and, and fasting, uh, the Holy Spirit was at work. He says, set apart these two men, uh, Barnabas and Saul. I've got a unique work. We already have seen uh, that uh, Jesus had told Saul, hey, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell the pagans, you're going to tell the kings of the pagans, you're going to tell them about me, you're going to preach uh, the gospel uh, to them. And so they were called to a, a unique type of service. Um, and and that, that's an important thing. And when we talk about call, and I've, I've heard this language my entire life, I, I, maybe, maybe at some point, uh, you know, I haven't gone back and analyzed it as much maybe as, as I should have. But the Bible can speak of the call in the sense of the gospel is a call to faith and repentance. It is a universal call to all men in all places at all times, okay? And, and that is an appropriate way to speak of, of call, that God is calling you uh, to, to salvation. The Bible, the, the Bible can also speak of a call that actually produces salvation, an effective call, the, the cause, uh, the, the, the work of God in our life uh, of regeneration. Sometimes the theologians will use the term an effectual call. The Word of God is, is heard and the Holy Spirit so works that He replaces that heart of stone with a, a heart of, of flesh. And then there, there, there's a, the call uh, to, to service, uh, the call uh, to, to deacons or, or eldership uh, that, that I think is important. And, and it's, it's interesting, as much as, as I've heard about this over the years, the Bible doesn't say a lot about it other than what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3. He that desires uh, the work, the office, the task of the elder desires a noble task. And so doesn't really say something about you know, hearing voices from heaven or seeing you know, smoke in the sky, smoke signals or anything like that. But it's an inner working of God that is unmistakable that this is my will for your life. And I think about my, my own journey. And, and at some level, just knowing me, I'm glad that it was about a seven-year journey. From the first kind of operations of God in my heart, 
that began to mold and to shape and to move me from an orientation toward running a business, which I enjoyed, and, and it's all, it was a good thing, but began to, to form in, in me a desire to be something. And you've heard me say, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm joking, but I'm not. Uh, not only did I not want to be a preacher, I didn't even like them. Just as a, and, and pretty much that's true still, for the most part. Uh, but, uh, but God formed this thing in the heart. And I, and I struggled and I struggled. And my beloved John, my man John MacArthur, I can remember driving home from Anniston one day, going right by Cherokee Plaza in Center, Alabama. Remember right where I was. Listening to Moody Radio, 50,000 watts, Lookout Mountain, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he began to, to speak in terms of uh, Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And he began to speak of his understanding and how God called him. Now part of MacArthur's call was his backside being loaded up from, with gravel from an Alabama road. That's true. He got thrown out of a car and skidded on the road on his backside. And while laying in the hospital bed, he understood God had a plan and a call upon his life. Didn't take that quite for me, thankfully. But I began to analyze that and think about it and his explanation. What was the greatest desire? What was I willing to sacrifice the most for? And it was seven difficult years of training and preparing before I stood before a church as its pastor. And so again, it's a good thing to think in terms of this call. But that call, notice what they did. They laid hands on them. You know, and, and, and sometimes we joke about this a little bit. You know, uh, somebody pops up one Sunday and says, God called me to preach. Okay, you're up, you're up next Sunday. And, you know, there... A call to preach is a call to prepare, okay? And if you don't love to prepare, don't, don't plan on preaching, okay? That, that, it, that it's a challenge. It's, 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 it's a difficult, difficult thing. But here's the thing, and here's one of the guardrails we have. I can say all I want to. I'm called to preach. I'm called to be the preacher here at North Clay. But there's a, a unison. There's a common confession. Yes, Tim, we believe you are called to that we believe that God has placed you here at North Clay and so we share in that conviction and again one of the ways it's symbolized is by the laying on of, of hands and so we continue to do that many times when we have missionaries uh, leaving from our church we will go through that when we recognize our deacons when we recognize our elders and I think it's a good thing I think it's a biblical thing I don't think it's an ordinance I don't really think it's a supernatural thing but it sure could be put in the category of a means of grace to recognize and identify. And the church says to these men, we're with you. We're with you. We're going with you. Antioch said to Paul and Barnabas, we're going with you. We're going into that world. And so the missionaries are set aside by, by God himself. They are sent out and they leave. And there in verse 4, the missionaries arrive in Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean uh, Sea, uh, not too far off of the, uh, the coast of what we might call uh, Palestine uh, there. And so uh, they, they first go down the, the river from Antioch to Seleucia. Then they sail uh, to Cyprus, and they arrive. And here's what they did. 
they went down to the local pizza parlor uh, there in Cyprus. I mean, being, being as close to Italy as Cyprus would have been, they would have had great pizza, right? And, and so if you're going to have, you know, gospel meetings, you've got to have pizza, right? I mean, that's the only way you can get people to come to Christ is you serve them pizza, right? Isn't that the way it works? Now, what did they do? Look there. They proclaimed the Word of God. They proclaimed the Word of God. That's the only thing God has ever given to His church by which they will not fail, by which Christ will build His church, is you preach the Word of God. You, you read it. You explain it. You, may, you help people make sense of it. You preach the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so they went. And they went to this unknown place. And they went to the synagogue that would ultimately prove hostile. And they began to preach that Jesus was the one and is the one that you have been anticipating. He is the name in which all men must be saved. He is the only name given among men by which men must be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man may ever come to the Father except through him. And so they preached this word of God. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, they preached the, the whole counsel of God. While preaching, it notes there also in verse 5, kind of interesting, we're not, not going to say much about it, but young John Mark was with them. And it seems like in the language, he, he was, he was uh, an apprentice. He, he, he was an associate. He was there to, to make sure that they had what they needed, that they would not be uh, distracted uh, in their work there uh, in, in Cyprus. And so they begin to travel through that island, and they, they make it uh, to the city of Paphos, and they begin to preach the gospel there. And, it, you know, what, what is that? Five or six verses of our text is devoted to this encounter with this magician, uh, by, by, by this false uh, prophet, by this uh, deceiver. And whether it's, you know, kind of an um, incarnate, you know, person that is in opposition to the gospel, uh, Satan will always ensure that wherever the gospel is preached, uh, there will be opposition. doesn't mean there will be somebody named Bar-Jesus there, but you can be sure that he will create uh, difficulties for those who proclaim the gospel and for those who would hear uh, this, this gospel. And so here we see a false prophet from outside of the church. And I, how many times? Somebody may have written it down. You may have kept count. How many times have I said something along the lines that every major figure in the New Testament has a warning about the reality of false prophets? False prophets from outside the church, and I think far more dangerous, false prophets within the church. I was really uh, lately asked about a particular, evidently, I'd never heard of her teacher, pre, uh, I guess she's a teacher, um, that's making the rounds these days along with a lot of other folks. And I never heard of her and couldn't really find, I've told you before, one of my go-tos is a guy named Tim Chalice. I'll just see if he's read their book or something and he's pretty discerning. But... Um, Again, this is someone that's within the church. She's been associated with Stephen Furtick, which uh, seems to be uh, kind of a resident heretic within the Southern Baptist Convention these days. And, and, and so I said, best just to stay away from her, I think, would be my advice. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I didn't have time to read her books and exegete everything. I just don't have that much time. 
Uh, but uh, false prophets have always been a problem. They're still a problem. Uh, I try uh, to warn you. I told you I, I really don't want to come across as I'm the only one that knows anything and I'm the only one you ever need to listen to. I don't feel that way. But I will tell you this. Be careful. And All right, ladies, be mad at me when you leave. It's okay. I'll take it. But these women, whether it's Beth Moore or uh, what's the lady that looks like the Joker? Um, Joyce Meyer. Uh, They're out of their mind. They're out of their mind. Ladies, beware. The woods are full of them. All right, again, let me go by my office. Let me get my bulletproof vest, okay? But I would just tell you, I'm not saying there's not some great women teachers out there. There are. But scrutinize them. Be discerning. I'm just telling you. I'm telling you. And even those that are writing material for the Southern Baptist Convention, okay? I'll get two bulletproof vests. All right, so... What was he doing? What was this cat doing? Elimus interrupting, distracting, indicting the messenger, indicting the church. Nothing new there. Old strategy still going on. Denying the gospel, denying the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fully God, fully man, advocating all kinds of errors, whether it's uh, some type of easy believism, whether it's legalism, whether it's some kind of syncretistic. So all, all of these things are different ways that Satan strategizes to undermine the message of the Bible. And Paul was so gentle and sweet. I, I love Paul. Paul's my guy because he just always is nice to people like me because I'm always nice. You son of the devil. Yeah. If he can say that to that man, then I'm telling you, be discerning. I'm telling you. I'm admonishing I'm trying to shepherd you. I'm trying to warn you. There's junk out there. And so Paul rebukes Elimus and actually pronounces, or God brings a curse upon this particular false teacher. I guess, thankfully for current false teachers, I have no ability to pronounce curses. So I guess they will go on until they stand before God and God will sort it all out. As difficult as... That type of thing is as, as great a reality as false prophets and difficulties and challenges and discouragements are in the preaching of the gospel. Notice the last verse of our text. Yeah, we had this jerk trying to cause problems. But the guy who was most closely associated with the proconsul, what did he do? He heard the gospel and he believed. It wasn't sugar-coated. Now, I am sure that probably... Uh, Saul took the time to point out the errors of the false prophets. Sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to say, they, okay, they're wrong here, 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 and here. Okay, This is unbiblical. He dismantled, he destroyed that stronghold, whatever he did. He, he, he engaged in spiritual warfare. He took the sword of the Spirit, and he dismantled what this man was doing. But the Word of God, because it is sufficient, for salvation. It is sufficient for sanctification. It is sufficient for you to grow in your discernment. The Word of God was proclaimed 
as it was at the beginning of this mission, as it would be continued throughout the entirety of the missions that are described in the book of Acts, and the Word of God would accomplish that for which God sent it forth. It would not return void. It would so work, it would be so uh, uh, used by the Holy Spirit that God would cause these people to believe this truth, this very strange truth about a Jewish peasant who never seemed to amount to very much. He ran afoul of both the Jews and the Gentiles, and they crucified him. But let me tell you that, that wasn't the end of his story. That three days after they crucified him, he was raised from the grave. And he proclaimed that there is salvation in no other name. And we proclaim there is salvation in no other name. And it is still that by which Christ will build his church. That's why we say with the Apostle Paul, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ him crucified. That's why we say amen to the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. There is nothing else that I have to offer to you. That indeed, these courageous, and to be sure about it, these spirit-filled men, these men the church was discerning and they looked at and they set them apart and they recognized that God was doing something unique in them and the Holy Spirit was at work and the Holy Spirit was sending them out for the sake of the building of the church. And thank God, He's still sending us out and we will be sending those out and we will continue to be a part of what God has determined to do. Now indeed, we do not live in the time of the church's greatest failure. We're going to live in the time of its greatest success. Because failure is not an option. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, the Word, which is the testimony and even the demonstration of your power. God, sometimes we're rightly amazed by that which you did. It falls into the category of the supernatural. We thank you for that. I guess sometimes we wish we could do that, which would be described as supernatural. And yet we forget that you still do that which is supernatural. That you take this preached Word of God, and you give people that have a heart of stone, that do not even have understanding, you give them understanding, and you give them the gift of faith, that you open their heart, you give them the heart of flesh. And we thank you for that. And Lord, each and every time we come under the sound of the Word of God, you're confronting us with the law. And we do cry, woe is me. We cry out at the holiness of God. And we rejoice at the goodness of God and of His gospel. May it ever be that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.